Today's reading is from Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Let us hear the word of the living God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, you have not appointed uh, the ministry of the gospel so that the faith of men would rest in the wisdom of men. You've appointed uh, your word so that the faith of men, women, and children would rest in the power of God. And so... I have, again, great expectations this morning that you will do great things today with eternal consequences. Not because of my wisdom and not because of my power, but because of your goodness and your wisdom and your power And we are certain of these things about you because there's a cross behind me as I pray this. And that really is the anchor of it all, what you have done in Jesus Christ. So, Father, from a a vision of sanctification for my brothers and sisters, I, I, I pray, I pray for their profiting this morning from the ministry of your word, whether single or married, and from a vision of your great justifying, reconciling work in Jesus Christ. I pray for those not yet 
my brothers and sisters, that today would be the day of their salvation under your grace. Jesus promised that if he was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all men to himself. And Father, I ask that you would fulfill that pledge of your sons today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back together to, um, to look at the theme of singleness according to the gospel from our passage, and I want to emphasize the word together. Um, somebody mentioned to me uh, last week that, um, that they, they said in passing, um, it was really good to hear you preach uh, to single people. And I just had a very polite correction, which was, hey, I was preaching to everybody. I was preaching to me. So I just need to be very clear about that from the beginning. You saw the title of the sermon, Singleness According to the Gospel. This message, my conviction, is that what Jesus has to say about singleness in this passage is 100% relevant to 100% of the people in this room. Just like his teaching on marriage was 100% relevant to 100% of the people in this room. It's utterly critical to see that. We all need a theology of marriage, and we all need a theology of singleness. And that's one of my driving convictions here. We need a theology of singleness, whether we're single or married. And that theology of singleness needs to be built, it needs to be filled, it needs to be adorned according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So last week we began to look at the theme of singleness, I was going to say thingleness. That was not in my notes. We, we started to look at this theme, and I told you there were five lenses, if you will, that we were going to look at singleness through, and we only covered the first two last week, and the first two were singleness and the sovereignty of God, and then singleness and opportunity. And, and we started that way because Jesus emphasizes above all else in this passage that nobody is single uh, by accident. Nobody is single by mistake. A singleness is a calling. This is so liberating. Singleness is a, a calling from God uh, just as much as marriage is a calling from God. That's what he's emphasizing in his uh, exchange with his disciples, and that's shocking. And it has wonderful implications, as we saw last week, because it means that if you're single, it's not because God has failed. It's not because you have failed. It means that your singleness is never a penalty. It's never a deformity. It's never a deficiency in who you are because God is sovereign over it and he's gracious. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But you know, marriage isn't easy either. But let the sovereignty of God over singleness free you. Let it free you. And secondly, we saw, that, uh, we saw that, that what singleness is, although we're tempted to believe, we're tempted to believe that singleness is a closed door, what the scriptures teach and an implication of what Jesus is teaching here, and we saw particularly from the Apostle Paul, we saw that singleness is, is not a closed door as, as, as though there were no opportunities for you. What singleness is is a key that unlocks different doors. 
God's sovereign. He loves you. He is good, right? And you need to think about your singleness in terms of opportunity. This morning, I want to I think about three other themes with you. Uh, and uh, Well, let me just say this, friends. The Lord of glory. I want you to hear this. The Lord of glory is not ashamed of your singleness, so you shouldn't be either. Jesus speaks so highly of singleness here. It's not a consolation prize. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to go further into the subject, and there are three themes we're going to look at. And the first, I'm just going to warn you up front, the first is almost the whole sermon. It's the longest, singleness and purity. And then we're going to look also at singleness and idolatry, and then singleness and eternity. So let's, let's look first at singleness and purity. And there's really two elements. What is the whole uh, theme? How do we think about the whole theme of sexual purity and singleness? And there's two big topics under that heading I want us to look at that are utterly critical. There's celibacy and intimacy. And that's the vision, the biblical vision for uh, sexual purity for the single person. Celibacy and intimacy. So let's, let's think first about celibacy. It's vital to see here, friends, that when Jesus is, is uh, teaching us about singleness and about how singleness is a calling received from God, that he is also necessarily teaching that that calling comes with a related calling, always, and they're never separated, and that's the calling to celibacy. Singleness is a gift. Celibacy is a gift. And they are both linked together by Jesus. That's why he uses the term eunuch five times in a single verse in verse 12. It's interesting. If we were going to be contrasting uh, what it means to be married with its opposite, when we were thinking about how to describe the opposite of being married, we might say things in our cultural setting like, well, singleness, like I've been saying, or being unmarried. But you notice what Jesus does is he drives this word eunuch home five times in a single verse. Why does he do that? Because he's emphasizing that God's gift of singleness always comes with it and must never be separated from his gift of celibacy. So what our culture wants to separate, right? Our culture has a vision of singleness, and our own hearts do. Can I just say that? It's not our culture's fault. You know, the culture is just the accumulation of our hearts, right? We want sexual liberty. We want sexual liberty that we define in terms of sexual license. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever they want, with whomever we want, as long as they want it too, right? That's not sexual liberty. That's slavery. What sexual liberty is, is the freedom not to define your life in terms of your sexuality. That's freedom. And what our culture does is it tries to divide singleness uh, from celibacy. So you can be single and not be celibate, but that's not the biblical vision. Those things always come together. Now let me pause here because I know that there's a question in some of your minds. You're saying, Mike, okay, I get that there's a calling to singleness, and I get that there's a calling necessarily biblically to celibacy that goes with that. But why do you keep talking about these things as if they're gifts? My celibacy as a single person sure doesn't feel like a gift. It feels a lot more like a burden. 
Well, friend, let me ask you this question. Where in the world did you ever get the idea that if something is a gift, even a gift from God, that it's not going to be hard work to steward it? Where did you get that idea? Not from God. Just because something is a gift, and I'm not going to back down on that terminology because that is the right way to understand it. Just because something is a gift does not mean that it is not going to be hard work to steward it. I know a little bit about teaching. Teaching is a spiritual gift. Teaching is the hardest work I have ever done. And it's not... It's not despite the fact that it's a gift of God, it's precisely because it's a gift of God that it needs to be approached as hard work. The same thing is true of every gift of God. It is so precious, it's a gift of God. You don't put that in, the, in the, that drawer that you all have in your kitchens, just like we, we, we actually have multiple drawers like this, where you open the drawer and you have no idea what's in there. You don't put a gift from God in that drawer. It's a gift from God. You take it seriously. And maybe you say, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, but what about, this? let's talk about something more real, like my, my sexuality. Okay, I'll talk about that with you. Marital fidelity is a gift just like celibacy is. And if you think that it is not hard work to guard marital fidelity, then you're living in fantasy land. Friends, it is a beautiful and important gift that God has entrusted to you if he's called you to singleness. It is a treasure. Do not let our culture, do not, friends, don't let our culture make you feel poorly about your celibacy. Our culture will teach you, oh, it's just, it's so oppressive. I see it everywhere. I I come up on the, fr- the page of the New York Times, the first page on the website. There's always something about this theme, always. And it's this relentless, relentless, relentless message that if you're not sexually active, you are somehow less than a human being. That's a lie. It's a lie. Don't let the culture, uh, the, the, you know, don't watch the Grammys, don't watch the the Academy Awards, and let those people up there tell you what true freedom is. Don't let that happen. Don't be ashamed of your celibacy. Don't regard it as some kind of incompleteness, some kind of, some kind of vacuum, some kind of secret that you need to be ashamed of. Friends, don't, don't let the culture make you think that it is foolishness to pursue a life of celibacy to the glory of God. That's not true. Don't let the culture try to convince you that you're just ignorant and primitive and backward. Because in the eyes of God, celibacy is wisdom for the single person. Celibacy, God doesn't, God doesn't look at celibacy for the single person and say, oh, that's ugly. He thinks it's beautiful. Jesus Christ thinks it's beautiful. In your celibacy, friends, Jesus Christ sees himself. The one who was born of a virgin and who died a virgin. He sees himself. 
in your celibacy in that you resemble your master. Who would you want to resemble? Lady Gaga or Jesus Christ? Yeah, I mean, it is funny at a certain level, right? But it's funny like we should cry. Right? Do you want to be like your master who treasured these things, who saw in his sexual purity a demonstration of the beauty and sufficiency of God? You need to have a high view of celibacy. You need to think of it as an open door. It is not a closed door. It is a key that opens a wonderful and beautiful door. Not an easy door. But no gift ever opens an easy door. No true gift of God ever opens an easy door. Second question. Okay, Mike. I'm not ashamed of my celibacy, but I am awfully lonely in the midst of it. How am I supposed to deal with that? Well, let me make it worse before I make it better. Three things that I think need to be in your mindset, friends. I want to equip you. It is hard. I remember how hard it is. It is hard. I'm not up here telling you it's going to be easy. In fact, I, I want to tell you, I want to begin by telling you it's probably going to be a lot harder than you think. Because this is a very long race that we're talking about. The, the race of sexual purity, um, you know, living within God's defined boundaries for our sexuality. For a married person, that's fidelity in a one flesh union. For a single person, that's celibacy. There's nothing black and there's nothing that isn't black and white about these things in the Bible. Okay, but I'll be honest with you. When I was a single guy, I thought that the finish line in this challenge was the altar, was getting married. But as soon as I was married, I realized that the finish line was not the altar. The finish line was my grave. Now, the sooner you get that, the closer you're going to be on the path to health. You have got, you have got to see, my friends, this is a very long race, and you have to prepare and pace yourself accordingly. The finish line is not the altar. The finish line is your grave. The character of, your, of the challenges to your sexual purity for the glory of God, they're going to change if God calls you into marriage. But friends, they're going to be there. The challenges are going to be there. And there are going to be things that you learn during your singleness as you are stewarding God's uh, gift of celibacy to you that are going to benefit you if God ever calls you into marriage. That's the first thing. This is a very long race and you need to prepare yourself and you need to pace yourself accordingly. You know, there's a big difference between thinking you're going on a weekend hike and going on a pilgrimage. Sexual purity is not a weekend hike. It is a pilgrimage. So that's the first thing. Now, let me say something else. If you're operating with a vision of marriage where if you get married, all your loneliness instantly ends, oh, let me pull that back too. You don't get that one either. Because that's not true. Being married is not the end of your loneliness. Marriage is not 
the cure to your loneliness. Even in the best marriages, there is always going to be some degree of loneliness. And you know what? That's by God's design. Because your spouse, not even Adam and Eve, okay? Now, this is really important. When God said about Adam, it is not good for him to be alone, he was not saying that somehow there was some deficiency in Adam's relationship with God that now had to be answered by his relationship with Eve. That's not what the Lord was saying. Eve was never given by God to substitute for God in Adam's life. So friends, don't ever think that your spouse, don't ever put this pressure on your spouse. Can I say it that way? Don't ever put this pressure on your spouse to answer all these things that that God alone is meant to answer. And so if you're a single person looking in at marriage saying, okay, I'm lonely, and so I'm looking for I'm looking for an end to my loneliness. If you think that marriage is going to be the answer to that, friends, you need to be wise. Because there are limits to even what the even in the closest, most intimate covenant relationship between human beings, there are limits to the intimacy that can happen between two creatures. Do you believe that? And that's really what leads me to the third thing that needs to be in your mindset, and that is marriage isn't going to be the end of your loneliness, but you know what? I have wonderful news. You are never alone. Do you know that? Do you know that you are never alone? As a single person, you are never alone. I kept thinking about Psalm 139 this week. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my my rising up and my lying down. You see my thought from afar. You know my thought from afar. Before there's a word on my lips, you know it, oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before. And then David says, such knowledge. In other words, God's knowledge of David is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. And then he says, "Where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You're never alone. Now, how, how do you find the power, then, for celibacy? How do you find the power to fulfill that calling? And the answer is through intimacy. That might sound counterintuitive, but it's not. And I want to think with you about intimacy on two levels. There's intimacy with Christ what I'll call vertical intimacy, and then there's intimacy with Christ's people, uh, horizontal intimacy. And friends, if, if these dynamics are not strong in your life as a single person, your, your battle for sexual purity is going to be undermined tremendously. And of course, these are not equal. There is a priority to the vertical. So, so I want to think with you first about what intimacy with Christ uh, means 
and I, and I want to say this right from the beginning. Friends, do you know what the greatest power is for sexual purity, uh, for, for, for the honor of Christ? you know what it is? It's intimacy with Christ. It's intimacy with Christ. Your no to sexual temptation is only going to be as strong and as consistent as your yes to Jesus Christ is. That's it. You, you can say no. You can think that you can say no all day long, but guess what? That no is only going to be as strong as your yes is to Jesus Christ. Whatever other doors... Uh, Jesus may have closed and kept closed in your life. Be absolutely certain of this, my friends. This most beautiful door in the entire universe, the door to relational intimacy with the living God in Jesus Christ, that door, what God did in Jesus Christ is open that door wide open for you. That's all the way open for you. This is the most significant door in the universe. This is the most satisfying relationship in the universe. This is the relationship that you were made to thrive in. And in that relationship, there is no locked door there if you're in Christ. That door is wide open. You might think that you see less in your singleness than a married person but you know, I, I beg to differ. There are things in many ways, my friends, to be a single person means that your spiritual vision is sharper than a married person's. It's more acute. Your spiritual vision is more acute because you, you, you live without the insulation, the mediating insulation of a spouse. You know that the only approval worth living for is Jesus. You know that. See, a married person can be very easily distracted. But you, you have what, the opportunity that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 for undivided devotion to the Lord. And in that undivided devotion to the Lord, there's that, that removal of that insulation. And so you know as you stand uh, in life, you know that there is one approval that you live for because that, that's the one you have. And so your vision is, in many ways, much clearer, much more acute than ours. And, and this relationship, this door that's open, is, in God's eyes, so beautiful. So the challenge is, is that door beautiful to you? Is it as beautiful as the door to marriage that you imagine in your daydreams? I wonder if you'd turn with me to Philippians 3. I want to show you what, what intimacy with Christ does to a life. Philippians 3, if you go to, it's, uh, I think it's page 981 in your pew Bible. So this is, this is the Apostle Paul, and uh, this is the testimony of a single man about how knowing Christ satisfies him. And, and friends, what, what I want to say to you about your singleness is that God has designed your singleness for the very... Si- I, I, I just long for you to... I, I, long, I long to be able to say this in a way that's going to make sense to you and be helpful to you. 
and I struggle with words all, all week to, to find the right way to say this. This is so critical. This is not a consolation prize, what I'm describing here, okay? So this is not a bone I'm throwing you. This is a vision of your singleness, okay? And I believe that what Scripture teaches is that God has designed your singleness for the very same purpose that he brought the universe into being. Yeah, it's that important. And the purpose of the universe, like the purpose of your singleness, is that both would be the proving ground of the worth of Jesus Christ. So God intends your singleness, whatever its boundaries are, to be the theater in which the beauty, the sufficiency, the excellence of Jesus Christ is put on display which is exactly why he made the universe. You saw it in our call to worship from Colossians 1. Why, did, why was everything made? Everything was made by Christ, for Christ, that in everything he might be preeminent, including your singleness. So when you look at Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, here's a man who's been utterly transformed by this encounter with Christ. Now, I'll, we'll start at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, he's thinking retrospectively, right? Looking back at his life before Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's saying, hey, listen, I had a great spiritual resume before I was converted. I I was from a good family. I had a great education. He was probably wealthy. His family had Roman citizenship right? He had influence. He was an up-and-comer. You know, in Galatians 1, he says he was advancing beyond his contemporaries. This guy was hot. He had a lot of Twitter followers. They were all Pharisees. But you just think about the profile of Paul. And then he says, and then something happened in my life. And what happened in my life is that Jesus Christ met me. And that changed everything. My value scale was turned upside down. Whatever I, all my definitions of gain and loss were completely reversed. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's what he did when he uh, followed Christ. But now, notice verse 8. Now we're in the present. And that's so important to see. In other words, The discovery of the value of Christ did not end, but it began at Paul's conversion. It didn't end there. How about for you? Are you still finding in your Christian life that that the glory of Christ, you're discovering more and more that what you received when you were converted was way bigger and way more beautiful than anything that you had understood at the time. Isn't that true? Amen? Come on, Presbyterians. <laughs> Friends, that's, that's what's supposed to happen in the Christian life. You really think that you can understand everything that God gave you when you were converted? No way. And so what Paul is saying is now, years later, after I've been a Christian for for a long time, I still count everything as loss. Why? Look at what he says. Because of the most beautiful door in the universe being open to me by God's sovereign grace. 
Because of knowing, because of the surpassing worth, there is nothing that compares with Christ. There is no, he has no competitors. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then this always gets me, every time I read, read this, my Lord. My Lord. This is not just a theological manifesto. For him, this is, this is the description of his heart. He knows Christ in this way. And when you think about what Paul knows about Jesus, he's just stunned by the wonder that this one, whom he was persecuting, has, has come to him and made him his own. And Paul says, to know him exceeds every other treasure I have in my life. He's a single man. He's not even worried here about marriage. It doesn't even come up on the screen. Do you see that? There is something so massive about what he sees of Christ that everything else is relativized. In comparison, there's something so massive. Sure, he's single. Sure, he gets lonely. Sometimes you hear him say, hey, how come I don't, you, you know, how come, am I the only one who doesn't get to bring along a believing wife when we do ministry? Do the, just the, the other apostles get to do that? You know, it's not easy for him to be single. But he's not, he's not defining himself by it. What he's defining himself by is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And what does he say about it? He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know, every time I read that, I think about how Paul is so acutely aware of the irony there. Because what did Jesus do? What did Jesus lose for Saul's sake, for your sake, if you're in Christ? What, did, what was Jesus willing to lose? All things. All things. And he had a lot more all things than you and I do. Right? I mean, think about it. He literally had all things. We just have those drawers in our kitchens. But Jesus had all things. And, and what, what he was willing to lose, what the poverty, that, the spiritual poverty that he was willing to embrace in order that sinners like Paul, sinners like you and me might be enriched, what he was willing to lose for somebody like Paul just absolutely compels Paul. He thinks that is amazing. And what did he gain through that process? What did, Paul, what, what did Jesus gain? Friends, I want you to come to the foot of the cross with Paul here. What did Jesus gain? When he was willing to lose things for his people, what he gained is our guilt. With his eyes open, what he gained was our guilt. His name was Jesus because he was going to save his people from their sins. Every time he heard his name called out to him as a child, he is thinking, my mission, my mission, my mission. I'm here to save my people from their sins. How am I, how am I going to do that? By being the sin bearer, by taking their guilt onto myself, by taking their liability onto myself. I'm going to press on. I know what my mission is every time Joseph calls my name every time Mary calls my name every time my siblings call my name I remember why I'm here to lose everything and gain the guilt and shame and wrath that my people deserve now see Paul 
is stunned by that story. And it changes his life. And it gives him joy. And it should give us joy as well. Intimacy with Christ is the only durable anchor for sexual purity. Your no to sexual temptation will only be as strong as your yes to intimacy with Jesus Christ. And friends, if you don't feel loved by Jesus so extravagantly, can we just be honest about this? That doesn't say a thing about whether or not he's actually loving you. Amen? No one has loved you the way, if you're in Christ this morning, no one has loved you the way Jesus has loved you. And if you're a non-Christian who's visiting with us this morning, this is what Christianity is about. That self-giving of God in Jesus Christ. That is the Savior who calls you today to repent and believe in him. He wants all of who you are, and he will settle for nothing less. And he calls you to repentance and faith that are a mirror image of what he has first given for you. He held nothing back of himself and what was his for you. And so you are not in any position, just like the rest of us, we're not in any position to negotiate or barter with him or hold anything back. You get all of Christ for all of you. So friends, there's intimacy not only with Christ, but there's intimacy with Christ's people. And this is the horizontal dimension that we need to uh, be very uh, clear about. And and I'm just touching again something that I tried to emphasize last week, which is uh, my married brothers and sisters. Don't let the singles in this church be invisible. Don't be blind to the singles. And single folks, how are you going to fight the battle for sexual purity? Well, you're going to do it at one level. You, the first and the highest priority is you, you have got to pursue intimacy with Christ. You have got to be going through this most beautiful of all doors. But you know the other thing you've got to do? You have got to, you need allies. You need friends. You need to welcome people into your life. You need to be able to say to them, hey, the master entrusted this treasure of my celibacy and my sexual purity to me. He's called me to singleness for at least some duration. It might be my whole life. But while this treasure of my celibacy has been placed in my hands by Jesus Christ, will you come alongside me and help me guard the master's treasure? You need friends. You don't need accountability partners. You need friends. You need people who know your story. You need people in your life, and you need to seek them out. You can't just be the passive person. You need to seek them out. You need to open the door to your life, and you need to be honest about where the fighting line is for you. Welcome people in so that the master's treasure can be guarded together. And my married brothers and sisters, we need to join with them, right? We need to move toward them. We need to help them guard the master's treasure. And we need to offer them the relational intimacy, right? It's non-sexual, but the relational intimacy that will guard them against sexual temptation. You are much stronger 
in your battle against sexual temptation if you have a whole bunch of relationships where you're already experiencing a deep relational intimacy. So think about that. Okay, I told you that was almost the whole sermon. So now we're at our second point, which is singleness and idolatry. And this is a very important area. Now, I'm going to talk about two, uh, two idolatries that uh, are particularly relevant to single people. And I, what, I, what I want to say at the beginning is I'm not saying that every single person has either one or both of these. Uh, what I'm saying is that, that some singles do. And so you need to be mindful of this. On the one hand, singles can be vulnerable to making an idol out of marriage. On the other hand, some singles, and you're going to laugh when you hear this, but I think this is a very real problem. Some singles are vulnerable to making an idol out of their singleness. So I want you to think about the rainbow in your soul. I know you never expected to hear me say things like that. What color is the rainbow in your soul? Okay. And I want you to think about what's in the pot of gold at the end of your heart's rainbow. That's what I want to be thinking about. You know, there are single people who are too ready to relinquish their singleness. And there are single people who are too reluctant to relinquish their singleness. Maybe they come from a broken family. Maybe they come uh, from a a family where they've seen uh, marriage just be hard. And so they're afraid, they're instinctively afraid of marriage. They're afraid of the responsibility. They're afraid of being vulnerable. They're afraid of potentially being hurt. And so they guard themselves in all kinds of ways by saying, you know what? Yeah, sure, I'll be, I'm talking about Christian people, okay? Uh, I'll get married, but you know, he or she has got to meet these criteria. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you come into my office with a list I'm going to get very nervous because unless it's God's list, and it won't be, by the way, it shouldn't be yours. God is the one who joins people together. Hello? It's kind of basic, isn't it? So be careful. There are single people who make an idol out of marriage. And you know that marriage has become an idol when its presence defines the center of your best and sweetest dreams and its, and its absence is at the center of your worst nightmares. You know that marriage, the prospect of marriage, has become an idol in your life if its presence is the sweet spot of your dreams or if its absence is your worst nightmare. Now that could be true if you've never been married. It could be true if you've been married and are no longer married. We've been thinking over the last month about how marriage is a good thing, and it is a good thing. It is a blessing from God. So a singleness, by the way, right? But what we must 
always acknowledge about God's blessings is that they are not ultimate things, right? It's, it, is, it is a good thing to praise God. It is inner health made audible to praise God from our hearts about his blessing of marriage. It is good for us to hold an understanding of marriage in our hearts as a good thing, a good gift of God. What is not okay is for our hearts to be held by that good thing. Because that's when, that's when we cross the line. And how do you know if your heart is held by a good thing? And by the way, this doesn't just apply to marriage, obviously, right? It's when you begin to look, for example, in the context of a single person, it's when you begin to look to marriage as your hope. When you think about the future, the best scenarios in the future involve marriage. When you make marriage your hope, when you look at your life and you think about how painful and difficult it is and you daydream about marriage as your rescue, or when you think about how broken you are emotionally or all kinds of ways and you are implicitly looking to marriage to be the thing that heals you. If you could just get married, then this part of your life would be healed. Do you see what's happening when you begin to think that way? What you're doing is you are ascribing to something that is not Jesus Christ, delivering powers, healing powers... The power of hope, if you make marriage the measure of whether or not you're okay, whether or not your life is fulfilling, do you know what you've just done? You've given to marriage something that belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ, that he has a monopoly over in the universe, and that monopoly is he gets to declare the worth of a human being. So this is not a little thing. When you're off on any one of these, what you're doing is you're embezzling from Jesus. You're saying, you know what? Something besides you or in addition to you is my healer. Something besides you or in addition to you is my rescuer. Something besides you or in addition to you is my judge. Don't go there. And if that's happening in your life, Exalt in the grace of God that enables you to repent. Because Jesus occupies those places exclusively. You know, I thought a lot about James 4 in this connection, you know, because it is very common, and I'll just confess this, this is one of those uh, unhelpful features of evangelical culture in the United States. The embedded assumption, the celebrated assumption that normal life for a Christian is marriage. And so what happens is, what, what, what's happened is this good thing that's a gift from God has, be, has metastasized into this absolute thing, this absolute standard. And so we begin to form plans where we say, my whole future is going to be defined in terms of marriage. I'm going to be this or that. I'm going to be a father. I'm going to have X kids. I'm going to raise Christian kids, all that kind of stuff. And you get to be 35 and it's still not true. Well, you need to think about what James 4 says. Remember the warning that James gives? He says, hey, in a different context, he says, hey, you, you businessmen who are making all these plans, you're saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to go to such and such a town and we're going to open a business and we're going to make so much money and then we'll be there for a year or two. Do you remember what, remember what James says? He says, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. 
So don't boast about tomorrow like it was your property, because it's not. It's God's. And all that kind of boasting is evil. So, friends, let me just warn you. Please do not boast in the prospect of marriage. Because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Your life is a vapor. Live in the present to the glory of God. And those single people who are tempted to embrace singleness as their shelter, because they don't want to be vulnerable, uh, singleness as their, as their healer, because they don't, want to, they don't want to have responsibility for somebody else's life. I mean, when you get married, guess what? Your spouse has problems. Oh, they do. And they're really big. And guess what the biggest problem is? Always their problems with your problems. No, I'm not kidding. We all know that we're going to be exposed in marriage, and some of us are so afraid of being exposed, being that intimate with somebody, that we will set up all kinds of walls and moats and all kinds of stuff to keep people at bay. And what I want to say to you, if this is where your heart is, is, friends, will you please remember that that is not how Jesus has dealt with you and your problems. Jesus did not set a moat up to insulate himself. He did not protect himself against being vulnerable because of who you are and the weights that you brought to him and the burdens that his relationship with you imposed on him. And so the gospel frees you as a single person to risk It frees you, if you're a marriage idolater, it frees you to risk singleness. (laughs) To risk contentment. And if you're a singleness idolater, the gospel frees you to risk marriage. So now let's think about eternity, because I know that's what you think this sermon already has been. The only way that you can ever flourish in your singleness is to keep your eye on the end of your singleness. To flourish in the present, you have to cherish the future that God has promised you. So I want to think, as we close, I want to think about two futures, the single's future and then our single future together. So would, if you turn with me to Isaiah 56, uh, which is page 616 in your pew Bible. I can't prove it, but I wonder whether Jesus had this passage in mind when he was speaking about eunuchs in Matthew 19. But this is a context in which the Lord is describing the future that awaits his people. And look at verse 3. This is the Lord speaking. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. You see what's happening there? 
God is interrupting. See, the eunuch has this narrative of his life, which is, what's the point of my life? I'm a dry tree. And in this culture, to not have posterity, this was a source of, of shame. And this is God, through the prophet, right, interrupting that narrative. Behold, I'm a dry tree. You could change the narrative. However it is, if you're a single person who's mourning your singleness and, you've, and you're sitting under your own false preaching, okay, which is, my li- what good is my life? I'm not married. I'm not going to have kids. Uh, I'm getting late. My biological clock is going. I'm too old. Nobody is ever going to be attracted to me. How am I ever going to get a wife? And, and there's that narration, you sit under your own preaching hour after hour and minute by minute and you get wedding invitations in the mail and you start preaching to yourself and all those things. And God, what God does, that's what the eunuch is doing. He's saying, well, I have no future. And what God does, this is so gracious, he does this all the time. You know what he does? He overrides our false preaching with his true preaching. That's what happens. That's how God deals with us. He re-narrates our lives to us. That's what he's doing to the eunuch. And what he does for the eunuch, he says, listen, you don't understand your life. You don't understand the meaning of your life. Let me tell you the meaning of your life, the meaning that I'm going to guarantee. You look at yourself and you see a dry tree. Let me tell you the fruitfulness that I'm going to bring forth from that dry tree. Look at verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. In other words, for those who go through that beautiful door. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I've got a better future for you than kids. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And do you know whose name that is? That is God's own name. Friends, there's a beautiful future. Let let steep your heart in his vision of your future and what eternity is going to be like. The waiting is going to be over one day and it's going to be wonderful. And it's, you're going to get to eternity and guess what you're going to conclude? It was worth it. That's what God's promising you. And then lastly, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 4 with me. That's page, uh, let's see, what page am I talking about? 569 in your pew Bible. Now, this is another vision of the end. And it's so interesting to me how in these pictures of the, of the great consummation of the kingdom that God is setting before his people through the prophet Isaiah, marriage just keeps coming up. When, when, when God is describing the future, there is this vision of marriage. And in many ways, what we just saw in Isaiah 56, God is promising a name. He's promising uh, some kind of posterity. He's promising a place in his home to the eunuch. That sounds like a marriage offer to me. And here in Isaiah 4, there's this amazing vi- vi- uh, vision that God gives. Look at, starting in verse 2, in that day, speaking about the great uh, future that awaits God's people, in that day, the branch of the Lord, that's the Messiah, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, the remnant of God's people who are saved. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's a vision of the the end of redemption where all of God's people who have been made holy by God's own action through the branch of the Lord, they're now all assembled together. 
When the Lord, verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. In other words, this is when we are in glory. Now notice what verse 5 describes. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, which is where the temple is, and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. What does that sound like? It sounds like the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? And, and God's presence with his people. But the difference now is that everyone is on Mount Zion where the temple is and God's presence is there. So now where there were, used to be separations in the temple and in the tabernacle between the presence of God and his people, right now they're together. It's such a beautiful picture. And now notice what's added. For over all that glory, over all the glory, there will be a canopy. So the glory of God's uh, people who are glorified and with him, fully reconciled to him, and now over all of that is God and his people dwelling together, and over all of that is a canopy. Well, this canopy doesn't light our fires at all when we see that word in English. But this word is the same word, and it's always translated this way, the same word that is used to describe the marriage chamber in Psalm 19. This is what's, what's called a chuppah. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, this is when the bride and the groom stand under that awning. This is a marriage canopy, and the picture that is being shown here is of the consummation of the marriage of God and his people. And guess what? That's where every single one of Christ's people are being carried to. That's the future that he has purchased for you, my friend. And notice the picture. It's a wedding. The groom is very happy. And the father of the groom has spared no expense. He's given his own son for that wedding to take place. And God wants us to see through this picture, wants you to see, whether you're a single person or a married person, he wants you to see that he is happy with the future he has prepared for his people. Steep your hearts, my friends, in that future. You will be strengthened by it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the great future that you've prepared for your people. We are not, we're not worthy of that future outside of Christ. What an amazing vision that you would want to be that near to us, to take us to yourself so closely. Strengthen us that we might endure with all steadfastness toward that great day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.